As we start tonight, just for a moment, uh, we're going to have some things on the screen here. It's an eye test for you all, so you need to look at the screen. So Ross, you bring the first one up for us. So I want you to look at this thing on the screen. Can everyone see these clearly with all the lights and that sort of thing? Yep? No? Is there someone who can turn a couple of these lights off? What do you see in this picture? It's a landscape. These two people. But it's actually a very sad story because these two people have lost their baby. Can you help them find their baby? Can someone see their baby? There's some people nodding and other people going, I don't know what he's talking about. But there you go. If you look around, this is the baby's feet here. And then it's head up there. Ah, there you go. So There you go. So, isn't that great? There you go. Next one. Let's go to the next one. What's that a picture of? It's a horse. Of course it's a horse. Okay. Now, everyone, turn your heads 90 degrees that way. What is it now? It's a frog. You're saying it's not a frog. No, it's a frog. If you're over here, you'll probably have to turn it 180 degrees, you know. So you see, when you turn your head on its side, the frog's head's down here and it's on a water lily sort of thing. See? See how it works? There you go. Next one. Lucky last. Here we go. So, which side of this cube is blue? It's the back inside one, isn't it? Yeah? No? Stare at it really hard for 30 seconds. Well, I'm not going to give you 30 seconds. And see what happens. It's freaky, isn't it? There's some people sitting there going, no, it's not freaky because I can't see anything. But, uh, yeah. What happens is, over time, as you stare at it, the blue wall becomes the outside wall at the front rather than the inside wall at the back. But for some people, it was always the outside wall at the back, front, and it just becomes the inside wall at the back. I don't know what that says about you, but anyway, I, you know, I'm sure a psychologist can tell us. Is there anyone who hasn't seen it move at all? Who, like, who didn't see the baby, didn't see the frog, didn't see the... Is there anyone? I, someone's given me a book of 3D things and I have stared at it for hours and there is something wrong. Either they're conning me and there is nothing to be seen or I can't see them. But anyway, we'll move on from the next one so we don't distract them. But the thing with all those pictures is uh, that you look at them at first and you think you've seen the whole picture. You think you've got what it is that, ooh, what it is that it's showing you. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. And then, after a while, you suddenly realise, I haven't seen the whole picture. There's more to this. It's, a, it, it's something different is within it. Uh, and the reason I got started with this t- tonight is because the Bible passage we're looking at is meant to be like an eye test for us. That's what it is. Uh, it wants us to look closely at Jesus... And ask ourselves the question when we've looked long and hard, do I see clearly who Jesus is? Do I have the full picture of who he is? So if you pick up your Bibles, or actually the uh, the passage is printed in our outline tonight, so look there and have a look. Starting at verse 27, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to another town. They're walking to this town of Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus takes the opportunity to ask them a question. So you see there, he says, who do people say... That I am. Now Jesus asked that question because he knows that that is sort of the hot topic of conversation around the traps. 
Jesus had been doing and saying some incredible things. If you were living back then in Palestine 2,000 years ago, it would have been the big question on your lips. Everyone was talking about it. Who is this man, Jesus? Because what was happening is you'd have been hearing stories about him healing people. So you'd have heard stories about paralysed people who can now walk and, and deaf people who can now hear and blind people who can now see. You may have even seen Jesus do one of the miracles or you may have known someone who'd been healed by him. Uh, it, it's funny, people today don't get this. People today sort of say, give me proof of the miracles because things like that don't happen. Uh, but actually, these are written down for us by eyewitnesses and the biggest proof is that at the time, no one disputed it. At the time, even Jesus' enemies said he is a healer. They admitted that. They said he came from the devil, not from God, but no one disputed that he did these things because they couldn't dispute it because if you lived there, there was the lame guy next door walking. There was the blind person who used to beg on the corner and now he could see. You see, that was the proof, if you like. And so the big question on everybody's lips was, who is this man, Jesus? Who is he who can do these incredible things? And Jesus knows that's what people are thinking, so he asks his disciples, he says, what are people saying about me? And his disciples sort of give him the results of the latest opinion polls. So look at verse 28. They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. So they're saying, people seem to think that what you are is one of the great ones from the past come back to life. So, which is actually pretty outlandish if you think about it. Their answer was, what you are is one of the great men who lived 800 years ago or, or who died before come back to bring God's word to people again. If you think about it, what are the answers people give to that question today? If you went into your workplace or your uni course or your school, whatever it is, uh, if you went in there and said, who do you say Jesus is? How would people answer it today? If you speak to people from some other religions, they would agree with the people of Jesus' day. They'd say Jesus is, was a prophet. That's what followers of Islam say. Jesus was a prophet. But I think most people I speak to these days say, I reckon Jesus was a good bloke. He was a wise man. He was a great teacher. And that's what people these days tend to think. And I actually think that's a really convenient answer. It's really convenient because if Jesus is just a good teacher then you can safely ignore him. You can sort of respect him and put him up there with Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela and all those other sort of great peaceful men of history who you then ignore. They don't impact your life at all, but you respect them. And I think that's the view most people had of Jesus. But back then that wasn't the thought. Back then they thought he was a man of God, but he was a prophet like the Old Testament ones. But Jesus isn't happy with just finding out what everybody else thinks. He wants to turn the question on them personally. It's, very, it's always easier to say what other people think than to be put on the spot yourself and say, what do I think? And that's what Jesus does. Look at verse 29. But you, he asked them again, who do you say that I am? And at that point, I imagine there was a moment's indecision or hesitation uh, because I think they've asked themselves just that question a thousand times. But now Jesus wants them to sort of verbalise it, to actually say what they think. And eventually it's Peter who's got the sort of guts to say something. And he says, if you look there, you are the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for what we've come to call the Christ, which is the Greek word of it, 
you are the Christ. When I was younger, I always just thought Jesus Christ was sort of Jesus' surname, you know, just like I'm Phil Colgan or that was Sam Davis we met before. Well, he was Jesus Christ, the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. You know, that's, that's what I thought it was. But, but it's not like that. It's not a, a surname. It's a job title. He is not Jesus Christ. He is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. So just like I'm Phil the minister or that's Sam the policeman, well, well, he was Jesus the Christ. And what it meant was he was the anointed one. You see, that marked him in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. When they made someone a king, when they marked them out as a king, they poured a jar of oil over their head. That's what anointing is. And so by anointing him, they were saying, this is God's special one. This is God's king. So that's what it means that he was the Messiah or the Christ. He was God's special king. So when Peter calls this, that he's saying, you are the one God has sent the king to save God's people. See, throughout their history, Israel had never been a particularly significant nation. They were always tiny and insignificant. They were just sort of like a puppet blown around by the big nations of that time, like Egypt and Babylon and Rome and those sort of ones. And when Jesus was around, it was the Romans who were in charge. But God had promised them that one day he would send a king, a messiah, who would rule all the nations of the world forever. He'd judge all the people of the world according to how they treated God and in particular according to how they treated Israel, God's people. And the people of Israel, like Peter and Jesus' other disciples who are here, they pinned all their hopes on this king coming one day. They knew they were small and insignificant. They knew they were oppressed. But their hopes was this king would come and he would wipe everyone else out and make them the most powerful nation in the world. That was their hope. So they used to get together and sing songs about it, sing songs about this Messiah, this Christ who would come. And we've got them in the book of Psalms in our Old Testament. And it would have looked ridiculous to all the other nations, these people singing this. I was, sort of like, I, I was watching uh, the television last week. I turned it on when Australia was playing Bangladesh at soccer. Anyone else see that? It was like watching a, you know, Manchester United play against my son Sam's under 12B team. It was like that. That was the difference in quality of the two teams. Well, it would be a bit like as the Israelites were singing, the Messiah is going to come and we're going to be great. The other nations would have felt a bit like Germany would feel at the World Cup if Bangladesh walked in singing, we are the champions. We're going to beat you all. It was just so outlandish. But now Peter says, he's here. The Christ, the King is here. So he's saying something pretty incredible here. He's saying, Jesus, we think you are the king of the world. That's who we think you are. And he's got this picture of Jesus that's all about absolute power and absolute authority. And he was right. Jesus has all those things because Jesus is God's king. But Peter had only seen half the picture. Like those optical illusions before, he's only seen sort of one of the images. The rest hasn't come into focus yet. Because listen to Jesus' response. Look at verse 31. It says, Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's what Jesus often called himself, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. 
See, Peter has this picture that Jesus is just going to march on into Jerusalem and be the king of the world. Jesus paints a picture, not of absolute power and absolute authority, but of absolute pain and of absolute suffering and of absolute rejection and death. Doesn't that seem strange? The problem is we know the ending. We already know the ending. We know what happens to Jesus. But it should seem strange. God's king, who's meant to rule everyone forever, has to suffer and die. And it seems strange to Peter. Look at verse 31. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I just love that part of the Bible, that little verse there. Just imagine Peter saying to Jesus, Jesus, don't be stupid. Jesus, you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. You haven't understood it, Jesus. You don't get it. You're the king. No one's going to reject you. No one's going to touch you. No one's going to hurt you. And you can understand why Peter would say that. It does seem strange. I mean, what sort of a king is like that? Not any of our leaders. None of our leaders are like that. But Jesus is livid with Peter. If you've been with us over as we've looked at Mark 1 to 8, uh, you'd know that the disciples are not the sharpest tools in the shed throughout Mark's gospel. They miss the point repeatedly. Uh, And all along, sometimes Jesus gets frustrated with them, but he's like a dad with his sons, sort of frustrated with them. That's not what he's like here. Jesus is absolutely livid with Peter for saying this. Look at what he says. Look at verse 33. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. That is a horrible thing to say especially to hear it from Jesus' lips. And I can just imagine the silence at that point. Peter would be shell-shocked. Jesus has just called me the devil for saying that. And it's a harsh thing to say, to call someone a devil for suggesting that Jesus didn't need to suffer and die. So why is Jesus so harsh? Why is he so angry at him? The key is back there in verse 31, look there. The key is where Jesus says that he must suffer. And he must be rejected. And he must be killed. See, Jesus would have loved to have come and be put on a throne and worshipped. That would be much better than going and being nailed to a cross. And that's what a man would want to do. A man would say, I love that sort of stuff. I love being worshipped. I love being adored. I love people bowing down before me. But Jesus says, Peter, God has got different concerns. So Jesus says, no, 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 don't you tempt me like the devil, Peter. I must suffer. I must die. And of course, the question is, why? Why must the king of the world suffer and die? And the reason is because you need him to. That's why. Because you needed him to. And I needed him to. See, the Bible tells us, and in fact, all the chapters of Mark up to this point have told us, that every person, every human being who has ever lived has this fundamental problem. It's the problem of sin. Every one of us is alienated from God. Every one of us has turned our backs on the creator of the world and said, I'd rather ignore you and I'll decide how I live my life rather than listen to you. It tells us there is no one who seeks God, not even one. And the Bible also tells us that God will not and cannot allow that to go on forever. 
there will be a judgment day. In fact, one of the jobs of the Messiah, of the Christ, was to come and judge the world, to judge humanity for how we've treated God and how we've treated one another. That is the fundamental human problem. But Jesus came to deal with our problem. That's why he must die. Because how he dealt with our problem was by taking the punishment of God upon himself on that cross. When Jesus was dying, it wasn't just that he was rejected by evil men who did horrible things. That has happened all throughout history. What was happening on that cross was something far more profound. The judgment of God that we deserve was falling on Christ, on Jesus. The Bible tells us it's only because of Jesus' death that we can be forgiven. See, to understand Jesus, you need to see the full picture. Our image here is actually really, really helpful. Because what is that thing on the right there of that image? It's meant to be, in case you can't work it out because you've only got a quarter of it, think of it as a circle, it's a crown of thorns. See, that's the full image of Jesus. He wears a crown, he is the king, but it's a crown of thorns. He is a king who had to suffer and die. And that is where Peter failed the test. He could see Jesus was the Messiah, the king of the world, but he couldn't see that he was a sinner and Jesus had to die for him. See, Jesus is both the king and the saviour, and unless you get that full picture, you will never understand who Jesus is. So I want to ask you tonight, do you have a clear picture of Jesus? I'm not asking you to come and give me the answer to the question, but I want you to ask it yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? Not who do other people say. I don't care what other people say. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you say that he is God's king and your saviour? See, that is the most important question you need to answer. Every human being needs to answer. Who is he? Who do you say that Jesus is? One of the things I was seeing clearly is that it makes you aware of other issues and other questions. A little while back, my wife Victoria discovered that she needed glasses. I thought, that's good, go off to the optometrist, get yourself some glasses, that's great. But actually, uh, it was quite disappointing for me afterwards because now she could see me. No, I'm only joking. No. <laughs> it was actually that now she could see how dirty things were and she wanted me to clean stuff. You know, I'm quite happy with dirty windows, but now she had glasses, she goes, those windows are really dirty. And I had, oh, I've got to get the Windex out, you know. Whereas before, I could just lie and say, no, they're clean, it must be your eyes. Whereas now she could see clearly, it's the same here. Jesus says, if you see who I am, if you get that, if you understand that I'm the king and I'm the saviour, then it must mean something. You can't just let it wash over you, it has to impact you. It must change things. And look at how Jesus puts it in verse 34. I'm going to read quite a long section, so you want to follow it along with me so you get it all. So from verse 34, Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? 
They're great words, they're famous words, they've been quoted many, many times, and they're meant to stir us as he says them. And Jesus says a lot in those verses, and he asks us a lot of questions there, but in the end, it all boils down to just one point. Jesus says, if you understand who I am, then you will follow me. The two go together. If you understand who I am, then you will follow me. And that's what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. That's what it means. But then Jesus says, following me is not like following a footy team. It's not like joining a soccer club. It's not like joining a gymnasium. It's not something you just add on to your other interests. It changes everything. And what he, the way he talks about there is he says it means we take up our cross. That saying has just sort of slipped in to modern English. People talk about, oh, that's my cross to bear. I, I heard someone say recently, you know, having kids, I've got to get up early on a Saturday morning and, uh, and take them to sport. That's just my cross to bear. I think that's not a cross. When Jesus says, take up your cross, the people there said, you are kidding. Because to take up your cross meant to go to your death. To take up your cross, you carried your cross to where you were crucified if you were condemned to die. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up your life for me. It's a massive call. That's what it is to be a Christian, is to say, Jesus, you are my king, so I don't live for me anymore. I live for you. I don't run my own life anymore. In every decision I make, I don't ask, what does Phil want to do? I ask, what does Jesus want me to do? Christians are followers of King Jesus. And that might sound like a tough calling, but think about it. What a king. What a king to follow. This king is unlike every other leader the world has ever known. He doesn't lord it over people. He doesn't abuse people. What does he do? He was willing to suffer and die for us so that we could be forgiven and be a part of his kingdom. That is the king we follow. And he is worth giving things up for. The reality is that sometimes people try to sell you something by hiding the faults and the downsides. If you've ever bought something that's advertised on television after 11 p.m., you will know that. If you've ever bought a pet egg, or a chamois mop, or any of those devices, you'll know what they do is they sell it to you, and look, this will make your life perfect. You will no longer have hard, cracked skin on your heels. doesn't work. I've tried it. <laughs> See, the reality is that's what people do, and people do it with religion too. Again, if you've ever bought religion after 11 o'clock on television at night, what they do is they say, Jesus is the answer to everything you've ever wanted. Follow Jesus and you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy and you'll be wise and you'll be whatever else it is you want to be. Do you notice how Jesus never did that? Jesus is incredibly honest. Jesus says, following me is not the easy option. The easy option is just to keep bumbling along and ignoring me. In fact, at points, and it shocks me, when I sit down and read Mark's Gospel with people, when we do Christianity Explained, One of the questions that nearly everyone comes up with is, why does Jesus try and talk people out of following him all the time? 
People are going, why doesn't he sell himself better? He needs to get a stylist or something or, a, or, or an advertising agency to help him. But that's the thing. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not the easy option. If you're not up to the challenge, don't do it. Because it has costs. It means taking up your cross if you're going to follow me. It means giving up things in your life that I don't want you to do. It means changing the way you live to live how Jesus wants you to live. Jesus doesn't hide that from us. He says, following me can be hard. But what he does say is, count the cost. Don't follow me if you want to keep living how you want. Count the cost. But then compare it to the prize. Compare it to what you gain. And what do we gain in following him? Well, in those verses, he talks about the fact that we gain eternal life. The hope of heaven. The certain hope of heaven. A certain hope for all of eternity. But more than that, what he gives us is a life now that actually has meaning. I think the greatest problem for most people in modern day Sydney is that they live their lives with no meaning. And so they look for it in all sorts of wrong places. And what happens is as they look for it and they think, if I'm just happily married... If I just get married, then then I'll be content. Then I'll have meaning in life. But then they get married and it disappoints. If I just work hard at my career, I'll find contentment and I'll find meaning in life. But then they get to 45 or 50 and they work out it hasn't worked. If I just buy a house or two houses, then I'll find contentment. And they find, no, I always want more. See, what, what happens is people work out that when you get to the top, whatever you think it is, there is nothing there. It's empty. It's shallow. You see, Jesus says, following me gives you life to the full, a life that has meaning. We gain a joy and a contentment that will make the things of this world that so many people want to worship, it'll just make them fade into nothing. One of my favourite quotes is from C.S. Lewis, the guy that wrote Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and all those sort of books. Uh, I'll read it out. If you've been around for any length of time, you'll have heard me use this quote before because it's one of my favourites, but I don't mind, I'll use it again. This is what he says. He says, we human beings, we are half-hearted creatures. We fool about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is on offer for us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum when the wonderful hope that we cannot imagine of an offer of a holiday at the sea is there for us to take. So he says, we're just too easily pleased. We mess around with the rubbish when we have the treasure on offer. See, people look for contentment and joy and meaning in all sorts of places in our world. They look for it in family, they look for it in their work, they look for it in money. But real hope and meaning, you find it in following Jesus. It's what God made you for. See, we can succeed in this life. We can earn more money than Rupert Murdoch. We can buy the biggest house in the street. We can get into the best university course, get the best job. Jesus says, what good is it to have all those things and yet forfeit your soul? All those things are irrelevant if you do not know your maker. Jesus says, your decision on these questions now, it will decide your eternity. Your decision on who I am and whether you choose to follow me, it decides everything. 
When Jesus, the King of the world, returns, will he look at me and say, there is one of my followers. There is someone who believed in me and followed me. Welcome. Or will he say, who are you? What good is it to have all these things and yet forfeit our soul? A couple of years ago, uh, I was catching up with a friend in town and we went to McDonald's on George Street there and it was crowded out and we were sitting talking uh, over lunch and this guy gets really engrossed in conversations and this guy, this big guy with a lot of hair came up to us and said in a really thick Scottish accent and I couldn't, you couldn't hardly understand him, can I sit with you? And I looked up and it was Billy Connolly with his daughter and there were no other tables in the place so he wanted to sit at our table and I'm like, But my mate who was with me just kept talking and looking at me, he didn't even look. And I'm like, <laughs> like... Anyway, so we ate our Big Macs and then my friend said, I've got to go back to work. And he went and I rang him up later and I said, do you know who that was sitting with us? He said, no. I said, that was Billy Connolly. He goes, really? And the funny thing is he was actually more of a Billy Connolly fan than I am. You, you know. <laughs> but he didn't recognise him. Now, in the end, it didn't really matter. It just gives me a funny story to tell and make fun of him and that sort of thing. But in the end, it doesn't matter whether you recognise Billy Connolly or not, does it? But recognising God's King, the Messiah, is the most important thing you will ever do. Eternity rests on it. And so the question, can you see him clearly? Who do you say that he is? That is the most important question you ever have to answer. And I want to invite you tonight to answer it for yourself. Do you believe he is God's king who is willing to, to suffer and die for you? And then that second question, do you want to follow him? Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing news that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But more than that, we thank you that he was willing to suffer and die for us. And we pray that every person here tonight will consider him clearly, will consider that question seriously. Who do I say Jesus is? And we pray that every person here might come to see him with full clarity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.